Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. One of the things that we, uh, a question I found myself actually asking over these last five months is, what is the church? Um, Because we would go to different churches and you, we would either chase people that we wanted to hear preach. You know, I know no one does that, but we did that uh, for that thing. And so we went to a church and we liked, oh, okay, and some of it are friends of mine who are on staff at other places that I never get to kind of hear and to see uh, friends of ours who go to other churches that we got to spend time with. Um, but it made me think, okay, what is the church? Is a church a place you go? Is it a sermon and some music and a shake hands and off you go? And if you like the coffee, like, what is it? I also had a chance to talk to a number of people, friends of mine, and people who I ran into who, you know, as I was coaching my son's baseball game, other parents uh, of kids, and their question of, like, what is the church and why would you go? Uh, I think for a lot of people, uh, and what I realized is there, there are a lot of people who are hurt by the church. Like, sometimes as a pastor, when you tell people what, they, what you do, it's like sometimes it's just conversations over. Um, those of you who work in mutual funds know that experience, right? It's like, it's just like, I don't know what to say. Um, other people, you sort of feel like, a, oh, whoa, like there's this big shadow that comes up behind you that they, and then other people just start confessing um, their church story, you know, or why they went and used to go and, or a religious background or whatever it was, synagogue, temple, church, what have you, and they don't go anymore. Um, and either because they were hurt by the community they were in, or they just find it extremely irrelevant to their lives, or in, in the best case, they're just kind of weak. It's like, meh, it's, not, it's okay. It's what good people do, but I don't need that, you know, or, or I'm not that good. You know, that's it's just, just my thing. Um, and, and there's all that experience that people have when it comes to church and the church. Um, the, the irony is Jesus and the New Testament writers described the church as, get this, Heaven on earth. Heaven on earth. In fact, literally, that, that the church, the community of people, is the place where heaven touches earth. Where somehow the community of people have an encounter with the living God, heaven touches earth, in a community of people together, and there is this experience both relationally this way and relationally this way that is the experience of heaven on earth. That is what Jesus and the New Testament writers describe the church to be. And yet for so many people, it's not quite there. It's been less than that experience. It's maybe halfway there, or maybe it's a total non-starter. And this is the irony that, in a sense, the church is meant to be and promises to be heaven on earth, and yet for so many of us, we struggle to actually experience it in that fullness. Maybe that's your history. Maybe that's the story of the people you know. Maybe that's your own story even within this church. It's like, how how does that, is that real? Like, is that actually, it promises something. In fact, you're here on some level because it promises that for you. But how, how is that actually the case? Well, this is not a new struggle, actually. It's not as if the church used to be heaven on earth, and now it's just sort of boring, irrelevant, untrue, disengaging, hypocritical, whatever. It's always actually, apparently, if you read the New Testament, been a struggle for the people of God to experience church as heaven on earth. And for the next eight weeks, we actually want to spend time unpacking what is this thing called the church. And here's my hope. 
that maybe for some of you, it's the first time anyone's ever explained to you, what is church? What is this supposed to be? Maybe for some of you, it actually brings back a passion and a desire to want to experience heaven on earth through the church. I have prayed already that for some of you, this would be a healing experience where God actually heals you from some of the hurt and the disappointment and the frustration and the letdown that you have experienced in the past, whether from other churches or our church. And maybe for others of you, it's a reminder, it's a joyful reminder, why am I fighting so hard for this place? Why am I fighting so hard for this community? Why am I fighting for this to be heaven on earth? They say hopelessness sets into your life when you cannot picture how the future will be any better than the present or the past. Hopelessness sets into your life when you cannot picture how the future will be any better than the present or the past. And therefore, in order for hope to come into our lives about this grand promise that this place would be heaven on earth, we need to have a picture that says it can be more. We're not quite there. We're always struggling to get there, but it can be more, and it produces a sense of hope. And so ultimately, that is my prayer, that this experience over the next eight weeks floods your life with hope. Even if this is the first time you've been in church or the first time in a long time, or if you are like, yeah, I am here every week. This is a part of my community. I am so into this place. I am woodwork that this would breathe hope into all of us in this experience of saying, this is what it was meant to be. Now, as I said, we don't actually have to look far to figure out, to unpack this, because it seems like if you study the letters in the New Testament, which were letters written to churches, and young churches, by the way, we, we think of them as ancient documents, but they were all written you, pretty much within like the first few decades after Jesus died and rose from the dead with eyewitnesses who had lived uh, with Jesus and they were planted by them. And you find that the leaders of the church, as they traveled around, were writing letters constantly to the church because the church was forgetting that it was uh, the greatest place on earth that it was the most significant and powerful community on earth, that it was heaven on earth. And so the writers of the New Testament actually had to um, remind them of it. The, letter we're gonna, the two letters we're actually going to use as our guide are from First and Second Corinthians, and you'll see on the website we have what's called community Bible reading, because Dave and I are going to kind of be jumping around in those books, but you can actually read through these two letters. And if you glean anything from those two letters, you never read them before, man, the church is messed up. It has always been. Why? Because it's full of people in community. And so these letters actually give us a guide as what does it mean for this to be heaven on earth. Now, in particular, we're going through the book of uh, Corinthians, which was two letters written to a place called Corinth, which is a, sort of an ancient place and a modern-day place. It's actually a beautiful place. Corinth was an isthmus, which is a little piece of land. It was about five miles wide, connecting two greater sections of land in sort of southwest Greece. And it also has, it still has, two bodies of water on either side. I think there's some pictures up there on it. Um, and what you'll find, I know now some of you are like, hey, let's go there uh, next month. Um, so I'm just going to turn off my auto lock here. What you will find uh, in this place is Corinth, though maybe some of you have never been there or will never be there, you know what it's like to live there. Corinth was a thriving part of the, of the, Greece, uh, the, uh, the, the Greek Empire, and then it was destroyed and it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar as part of the Roman Empire 100 years later. And it was this place that was the gathering spot for all kinds of people. 
Um, people from all different ethnic backgrounds and all different social classes came. Initially, it was a place Rome sent people that they didn't want to be in, in the rest of the Roman area because Rome was getting overpopulated, so they sent all the miscreants, ne'er-do-wells, and whatever into this place, or people that they can, didn't consider pure Romans. So it was a mixed bag of people, but it was a throughway, it was a passageway, there was water and land that was connecting, and so it was a port, and it was an overland passage, and so there was tons of money to be made, because that's how trade happened, right? There's no Bitcoin or whatever, you had to like actually exchange uh, goods with, and services with people. And so Corinth became this booming place, now think about this, okay? It was a booming place of, of commerce, filled with people from different ethnic backgrounds, where money and sex were the major pursuits of the day and where you could get there and make it. You've never been there, but you know what it's like to live there. Right? This was the world of Corinth. And in this place, at about 55 AD, to a 10-year-old church, the Apostle Paul writes this letter, the first letter of 1 Corinthians, because the church was immersed in this culture of wealth, of sex, of art, of everything, and trying to figure out what does it mean to be the church in this time and in this place where we do not worship the gods of sex and money, but we worship the living God, where we figure out that our community, not defined by ethnicity, not defined by social class, not defined by trades or trade guilds or what you do for a living, but defined by Christ. It was this church struggling, and in many ways, they reflected the issues and the challenges of the culture around them, as every church does. And so the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to them to help them understand what does it mean that this place, this church in Corinth could be heaven on earth. And in a sense, it's nothing new. And so the words that he writes to them are as relevant to us as they were then as we try to figure it out. How could this place, how could this community be the most transformational community in your life and in my life and for us together? And in the middle of the first letter, he writes this thing that maybe is familiar to you. It's what Kayla read before for us. I want to read just a little section of it. To the church, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, maybe you had this read at your wedding, or you have it in like those vinyl clings in your kitchen, and that's nice. We read, oh, it's nice. But remember, it was first written to a church. And Paul wrote the letter, but if he was in person, there wouldn't be like a harpist playing and he would be kind of doing his spoken word thing in his skinny jeans or something. In our day, like, there would be a keyboard pad playing. It was more like, hey, hey, stop. Don't you know? Love is patient. Love is kind. This wouldn't have been a, oh, that's so nice, Paul, moment as they read the letter in the church would have been a little salt in the wound, a little kick in the pants. Because, if we want to infer from the passage, they were impatient with each other. They were unkind. They were boasting. They were proud. They were self-seeking. They were easily angered. They were keeping records of wrongs. It was 
a hot mess. And Paul writes this beautiful passage to say, don't you understand this is what love is? Now, welcome to church. And you say, well, it's a bit harsh. You know, my church experience hasn't been like that, or okay, it's not perfect, but that seems like if that list is the opposite of everything, that is the opposite of everything they were doing, that seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? So let me just pause there for a moment, and let's consider another kind of community, okay? For those of you who are married, or have been married, or know people who are married, has there ever in your marriage been the opportunity for impatience? Unkind words, pride, selfishness, to be easily angered, to keep a record of wrongs, you always, you never, how come you always, to be self-seeking, to not trust the other person, to not seek the best for them, to actually, instead of hope, begin to despair about your relationship, instead of persevering to actually want to quit. Now, maybe you wouldn't check every box on that, but at any one point in time in any marriage for anyone who's been married at any length of time, you're like, oh, that's actually pretty realistic. That is real. Why? Because that kind of opportunity for that kind of friction and difficulty and challenge only comes in community where you are thrust together in something you can't get out of right? When does this happen in a marriage, this stuff? On the first date? <laughs> oh, no. I mean, if it does, you're done, right? The first date's good. I mean, does it happen when you're, you know, starting to, you know, you know that, that commercial that's on? No, you hang up. No, you hang up. Like, you know, when you're having like eight-hour-long conversations between midnight and 8 a.m.? Never done that. I'm just saying I've heard. <laughs> right? Is, is that when you're boasting and proud and easily angered? No. Does it happen when you're starting to meet each other's families and maybe start to think that this could be something? No. Does it happen during engagement photos? No. Wedding day, honeymoon, hopefully not. No. When does it happen? When you're stuck in it. When now you start to see who the other person really is. When you are waking up in the morning next to the person that you went to bed with last night that you wanted to kill. When you are tired of the person who says, can you forgive me for this again? When you are the one saying, I'm not going to be the first one to say sorry. That's when all of this begins to present itself, when you are actually in real relationship together. Thrust into a kind of proximity, like let's just be honest, that is terrifying. Everywhere you go, there they are. Right? Someone said it's like a tree growing in the middle of your house. You can't do anything in the house without taking this into account. This is your spouse. Beautiful, right? Poetic. I should write greeting cards or something. <laughs> Only in that kind of terrifying proximity does the opportunity for unloving stuff begin to occur. And listen, the church is supposed to be that kind of community. It is supposed to be a kind of community that you cannot easily leave, that you cannot stay on the surface of. It is supposed to be a kind of community where you are thrust into a kind of terrifying proximity with other people, and you begin to see who you really are, and that's when the opportunity for impatience, unkindness, harshness, to be easily angered, 
to keep a record of wrongs, to get bitter, to grow tired, to not want to persevere, to despair. It's supposed to be that kind of community, but it isn't because it's actually easy to leave, isn't it? And you're like, yeah, that's why we leave. That's, you just described my whole experience of church or religion growing up. You just described why I don't want to be in that kind of terrifying proximity with other people. I got hurt. I didn't want that. I, that's why people don't. Why would I want this? Why would I want this? Friends, because this is the kind of person you want to be. Look at that list. This is the kind of person you want to be. To be loving. To be kind. To be patient. To not be boastful or proud or envious. To be free from envy. That you can enjoy what another person has and not want it for yourself. That you can go to someone's house who has a beautiful house and enjoy the meal and not leave there wishing you had what they had. That you cannot grow tired of coming alongside someone who is struggling and hurting because you are long-suffering, you are patient. This is the kind of person you want to be that doesn't keep a record of wrongs, that doesn't have unforgiveness rotting you from the inside out, that isn't bitter, that isn't despairing or hopeless. Isn't this the kind of person you want to be? Aren't these the kind of people we want to be married to? Isn't this who you want to be, your teacher, your parent, your boss, your pastor, your friend? These are all the people we are drawn to. In fact, we don't settle for visible success of image management that the city of Vaughan and the city of Toronto and the city of Corinth settle for. In fact, we want to know, okay, you look good, but are you good? You're successful, but do you have successful relationships? You seem like a nice person, but are you really at the core? In fact, the more we find out about people, it actually makes us, when we find that, right, about apparently successful people or people you look at in your workplace or in your school, and you think, wow, I'd really like to get to know them. And as you get to know them, you're like, okay. Right? We want to know, is this, are you actually loving? We don't use this list in our minds, but it's the kind of people we're drawn to. And it is the kind of person you want to be, and so let me drop this bomb on you. It is the kind of person God wants you to be. And he has given you the church to make you that kind of person. Because community is like soil. And as you plant yourself in that community and your ro roots grow down deep, that soil of relationship and that proximity of people begin to change you from the inside out and you begin to grow. In other words, you cannot become this kind of a person apart from community. It's only when you are presented with people or who are driving you crazy do you have the opportunity to show patience. It is only when you have been the recipient of unkind words or a cold shoulder or someone who just kind of seemed to ignore you that you have the opportunity to heap kindness on that person. It is only when you have been hurt that you have the opportunity to not keep a record of wrongs. See, it is in this terrifying proximity of relationship where we have the opportunity to begin to change. Community becomes the soil of transformation. I hate to tell you, there is no other way around becoming this kind of person than to be in community and relationship with other people. 
A running club is good. It's not going to do this for you. They're not going to tell you that they're, you're driving them crazy. They just won't call you when they go for the next run. Right? Your book club, the other clubs and people and connected your sports teams or whatever, they're not going to get to the depth of this with you. They are just going to live on the surface with you. It's too hard. They don't love you enough to go there. It is only in a community and like a marriage like where I, there is a covenant pledge where I say to you and you say to me and we say to each other, I love you no matter what and I am committed to you. And because I'm committed to you, I'm going to have a hard conversation with you. Because I'm committed to you, I won't keep a record of wrongs with you. Because I'm committed to you, I will forgive you. Because I'm committed to you, I will continue to walk with you as long as you have to carry this burden. Community is the soil of transformation. Now, what gets in the way of this actually becoming a reality for us? There's a few things. One of them is idealized community. In other words, it's your idea or dream about what you hope community will be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the author and pastor and who was um, arrested and spent time in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, wrote this in his book, Life Together. He said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idealized community demand that it be fulfilled by God and by others and themselves. Think about this. We can't help but hope and have expectations and dreams about what the church might be. Because in fact, the New Testament promises heaven on earth. And so we bring our dreams and our ideals into this relationship and invariably we are let down. And one of two things happen. Either we continue, we actually end up crushing the people around us because we want them to be what we dreamed they would be to us. We want them to treat us like we dreamed they would treat us. We want them to love us like we dreamed they would love us. We want them to not have anything wrong with them as we had hoped this would be. So we either crush them with expectation or we despair in our hearts and think, oh, I was wrong. Or this isn't the right church, I'm moving on. This same idealized kind of, of, of uh, ide idealized dream of community is crushing marriages. We go into marriage, the whole, everything around us pumps it up to be this thing that will be the end all and be all. And week by week, our dreams are crushed. I sound like a cynic, I'm not. It is actually the idealism that needs to be crushed. And so do you love the idea of marriage or do you love the person in front of you? Honestly, do you love the idea of what church could be, or do you love the actual flesh and blood people who are right in front of you? Bonhoeffer says the sooner we realize that we import, we bring in with us, either because of our past or just what we think it will be, hopes, dreams, ideals, and invariably we are let down because reality sets in. And as long as we live in the world of dreaming and idealism, we will never actually get into the soil. Which, by the way, you know, I'm not a farmer. I know that's self-evident. But um, every so often I get out of my car at certain times of year and the air smells, right? Because, like, it's like what? Manure. It's 
It's not just the thing you say when you stub your toe on the bed. It's actually stuff that people put in to the soil because it's stinky and it's dirty and that is what makes it grow. And so the sooner we realize, wow, and we all do it. We all do it. We all have ideas and dreams and ideals about what this might be. And the sooner we let those go and say, okay, who is actually in front of me? What is the actual community in front of me? And what does God mean to do to this very real, through this very real community in my life and me in their lives? The second thing that keeps us from actually growing and becoming the list of love that we want to be is a surface commitment. It's what I'd call a, a 51st date relationship with the church. Because if you come on a Sunday morning, that's kind of like a first date. Now, assuming the preacher's not a train wreck and the music was good, it's a good experience, right? You got coffee or we ran out of coffee or whatever, not so bad. Found a parking spot, got in. It was pretty good. You're not probably going to, hopefully, experience too much unkindness impatience, all that other kind of stuff on your first date. And yet it's possible to just have 50 first dates where that's the only experience you have of church. And that actually never gets to the bottom, to the, to the soil, to the place, as I said to you over and over, this is the place that God means to turn you into the person you so long to be, the person you believe you can be. It is actually when we get away from this surface commitment, 51st date approach, that it's possible to just stay. And I know there's all kinds of reasons we do that. Some of it is we are in a big city like Corinth, and there are so many other things that we are chasing that, quite frankly, aren't actually going to result in transformation in our lives. One of the chief justices that was appointed in the U.S. in the last couple of years was talking about how when he used to teach law school. And in, in, in his class, he said to his students, some of whom were sort of the most, um, you know, prized students, some of the best, uh, highest academic people who were going to go on to get great jobs and achieve success in a very prominent profession. He said to them in his first class, I want you to write your obituary today. Write it out. What will people say about you at the end of your life? And he says the irony of their experience was, as they said back to him, nothing we are pursuing now with such great fervor made it on our obituary. It is everything that we tend to leave to the side, who we are becoming as people and what other people will say about us as their experience of us in relationship. And so let's be honest, in a city like ours and in a city like Corinth, there are so many other things to distract us so that in the end, we simply cannot make anything more than a surface commitment to the soil in which God is inviting us to put roots down into. Or we have been hurt when we put it down before, and so we are gun-shy, and so we are on the edge or just wanting to pull away. But maybe finally and most important. I think what stands in the way of us putting down roots so that we can become the kind of people that 1 Corinthians 13 describes is that we don't actually know the love of God. Because let's just say this for a moment. This list, if it is describing anyone, it is describing the love of God to you. 
It is describing the love of God to me. A God who is patient. A God who is kind. Who even though he has the right to, does not beat his chest and say, just do it because I told you so, I'm God. A God who keeps no record of wrongs, who says, I have taken your sin and removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. So when I'm looking east, I'm not looking west. I don't see you for what you have done and what you have done to me or what you keep doing and you can't stop doing. I do not see that when I see you. A God who is not easily angered. The scriptures say he is slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who always protects, always trusts, always perseveres, never fails. And ultimately, friends, the only way for that kind of love to come out of you is when that love is pouring into you. Because it does not come from us. We do not know this. What we naturally know from birth, all your parents are like, I don't know how this kid got selfish. I mean, I didn't teach him. You didn't. It's just come out of the womb like that, screaming for attention. It's all about me. The world revolves around me. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from a love outside of us that as it begins to flow in us, we begin to experience forgiveness, grace, long-suffering, patience, kindness. And when we are people who are knowing and experiencing at a heart level, that God does not count our sins against us, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger, then we begin to know this love of another kind, and it begins to flow from us. And so my encouragement to you is to dig in. If this is your first Sunday, that may just mean, hey, I'll come back again. I'm beginning to date. You can date. It's good. It's wise. But don't sit on the surface. Don't be tempted to pull away because things have not gone how you'd hoped. Whether you've been here for a short time or a long time or if that was your experience in another church. To dig in. To let your roots go down deep into community. This is the season where we launch home groups. For some of you, that's totally new. It's actually a, it's these smaller communities that we have in homes all over York Region that we meet during the week to give you an opportunity to begin to get close to other people. Not necessarily people you'd choose to be in the same room with. We don't sort of do affinity. We don't do personality sets. Not, we don't have a match.com thing going on with our home groups, right? It's like, where do you live? Okay, this is where you are. Why? Because we're not a community gathered around affinity or ethnic background or socioeconomic status or anything but Jesus. And we believe that, oh, this is a community that has the potential to become rich soil in my life that can help me grow. Now, some of you have been in home groups for a long time, and maybe you're tempted to give up because it hasn't lived up to what you hoped it would be. Maybe what you need to do in the first week of home group is say, guys, we are still on the surface here, and it's been four years. We need to go deeper. I need you to know me. I need to know you. We need to actually make this a place because it holds the potential to be heaven on earth, but we're halfway there. What does it mean for us to be a group of people who always persevere, who always trust, always protect, who fight for the community we want to have, recognizing that yes, it holds all the potential, 
for impatience and unkindness and to be easily angered and to keep no record of wrongs. Only when we dig in does God, through his spirit, through the community, give us an opportunity to become the people we want to be. For some of you, alpha may be something is the next step. And that may be a risk, especially if you're saying, hey, I'm not a follower of Jesus yet. I'm still trying to figure out all this stuff. And a lot of the stuff you mentioned is why I've stayed at arm's length from the church or those, those people. Maybe Alpha is this place where God is inviting you to say, hey, begin to experience whether this could be a soil of transformation for you. Because whatever your faith background is, we all want that. And there isn't a community on earth that holds the potential for that to become than the church. And so maybe that alpha opportunity is an invitation for you. Maybe it's just a relationship or a person or situation that you have noticed you have been leaning back from, that you have been trying to pull out over, that you have been on the surface of, that you just need to say, I need to actually dig into that. I need to lean into that. I need to have the hard conversation to say I'm sorry or to say I've been hurt or to say, sorry, I've been, I have grown impatient with you. How can I help you? How can I walk alongside you? Ultimately, actually, this is a really hopeful thing <laughs> because it means, like oftentimes when we realize we need to change, we need to become more loving, we need to become more like that list, we think, oh, I got to change, I got to change a bunch of stuff in order to change. What this actually says is you may be already planted in the very soil that you need to become the person you want to be. You don't need to change places. You need to actually just change your mind about it and say, okay, what does it mean for me to let go of my ideals, to let go of my dreams for what this could be, and actually begin to let God shape what it is into the person that I want to be? Friends, this is not unique to our church or churches in our day and age. It has been the struggle for the community of faith since the jump. From the beginning, this has been our struggle. It promises heaven and earth, and we're not quite there. And Paul encourages the church, persevere, hope, trust, fight for this.